0: Good morning. Morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us this morning. As we study, we will learn more about you, the Holy Spirit, and how you're working in our lives to transform and heal us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number three in the quarterly, the Holy Spirit and spirituality, and the title is the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Look at Sabbath's lesson. The second paragraph says the following. However, the deity of the Holy Spirit is taught in more subtle terms. It can be inferred from various indirect biblical statements. Here we need to compare scripture with scripture in order to study carefully what God has revealed in his word about the Holy Spirit. In doing so, we should not affirm less than what scripture states, and we also should not exceed what is written. This topic demands a teachable attitude of humility. We should not make our human reasoning about God the standard of how the Holy Spirit should be understood. Instead, we should accept and testify to what Scripture affirms, no matter how hard some of the concepts might be for us to grasp fully. And I thought about that in those last two sentences. We should not make our human reasoning about God the standard of how the Holy Spirit should be understood. Instead, we should accept and testify to what Scripture affirms no matter how hard some of the concepts might be for us to grasp fully. Should we be affirming something we don't grasp?
1: No. If we don't use human reasoning, how else are we going to understand?
0: It almost sounds to me like they're encouraging us to affirm things that we don't understand and don't make sense to us. That's almost what it sounds like to me. We should affirm it, even though we don't grasp it. It is this type of reasoning, taking Scripture as authoritative, without thinking, without comprehending, without truly understanding, that has led to so much abuse and the destruction in God's name throughout history. The Bible says this is exactly what the Pharisees did with Christ 2,000 years ago you're breaking the scripture, the scripture teaches that we should stone this woman, da-da-da-da-da, so and so on. And he was constantly telling them, if you'd read the scriptures and understood it, if you comprehend it, you should actually try to think more about what it means than simply quoting it. He told them this over and over again. And thus, they had scripture that they didn't fully grasp, but they were going to do what it said, even though they didn't understand it. And how cruel were they? And this is a problem. Yes, Wendell. The
1: scriptures t- testify about me. You, know, you think they bring eternal life. They testify about me. You know, it was totally uncomprehended.
0: Did the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, inspire Isaiah to write, Come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow, red like crimson. Did, did, is that inspired by the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit saying that God wants us to reason things out with our reasoning powers What is written in scripture? Read the scripture and then reason it out with him, with a humble heart, seeking enlightenment spirit, not arrogantly on our own that we know better, but but seriously to think and weigh out the issues. Wouldn't those who disagree with us on any point of doctrine, I don't care what point of doctrine, pick a point of doctrine, there are Christians who will see it differently. Wouldn't those who disagree with us that are honest of heart Christians essentially say the same thing that they should accept and testify what the scripture says? What they, com- they complete the opposite teaching than us. Pick, pick the doctrine, doesn't matter which one. And those people who disagree with us will say, we believe that we should attest and affirm what the Scripture says. And we say we should attest and affirm what the Scripture But we're now teaching exactly the opposite. Whether it's state of the dead, whether it's which day of worship, whether it's the uh, um, pre-tribulation second coming or post-tribulation second coming, whatever the doctrine is, both groups are saying we should attest and affirm what the Scripture says. And if we're both attesting and affirming with the Scriptures, why are we so divergent in our, what we're teaching? Why is there so much disagreement and, uh, and disharmony? We're both attesting and affirming Scripture. You see the problem? Because it also
1: leads to someone choosing a certain version of the Scriptures.
0: To affirm which way they like it, yeah. Because, why, why are we doing this? Because people, Because people are exercising their minds to understand, to the best of their ability, what the Scripture is saying. And people have different perspectives, different assumptions, different blind spots, different capacities, different biases, and, and many people honestly come to different conclusions. Not out of evil intent, but they honestly believe that's what it teaches. Claiming, and, and so we have these two groups arguing, claiming that the scriptures support both of the views. How do we determine of all these, remember there's 34,000 Different Christian groups out there all arguing amongst themselves. How do we know which view is more accurate than another view? What methods do we use for determining? And I'm going to give you some methods used through history. We pray long and hard until the Spirit convicts us in our spirit of what the true understanding is. This particular method is preferred in the Mormon tradition. When you have a Bible study with a Mormon, they will often be enlightened and say, "Wow, I never thought of it that way. That's pretty. I'm going to go home and pray about it." And what do they pray? They don't pray for wisdom and insight. They pray for a conviction in their spirit. It comes out of the Book of Moroni, chapter ten, verse four. If you know the truth of all things, you pray with sincere intent, with real with the, with real sincerity and sincere intent. The Holy Spirit will lead you to the truth of all things. And it means to them. That if you pray long and hard, the Spirit convicts you, and when you get that conviction, the warm, burning bosom feeling, then you know this one's true and not that one. That's one way that people use to tell the truth. So if you ever want to do a Bible study of the Mormon, you have to first deal with the issue, how do we determine what truth is? What method do we use to determine? If you don't deal with that issue, it doesn't matter how much evidence from Scripture you present, at the end of the day, they'll go home and pray, and they'll come back the next day and say, I prayed about it, and I'm convicted in my Spirit, that yet you're wrong. Okay, show me where in the scripture. I'm convicted in my spirit. The spirit has convicted me. How about this one? We ask for sign or wonder, or perhaps a message from the spirit, uh, maybe through a, a message in tongues, for instance, to tell us which is the true answer. Sign, wonder, and perhaps the particular miracle we're looking for is a message in tongues, often in the Pentecostal tradition. We look for other humans in a position of authority to tell us the right answer to interpret it for us. Uh, Roman Catholics, when Pope speaks ex-cathedra, it's telling us this is what it means, and we have no choice but to accept he's God's representative on earth. Or many Christians in their denominations who surrender their thinking to their pastors or conference leaders. We surrender our judgment to someone with a theological degree or accept what we read in a Bible commentary as a definitive answer. We organize committees of theologians to investigate and come back to us with a theological paper. We might even make a scripture research institute and create a tradition that a position coming from that group has higher spiritual authority and is to be accepted as truth. Anybody know an organization like that? We cite proof texts to support our point. We hold a meeting of church delegates and take a vote on what truth is. These are all methods that people use, aren't they? Has the Holy Spirit ever used any of them? Pray long and hard for a conviction? Does the Holy Spirit ever bring conviction? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is a method the Holy Spirit does use. But can this method be counterfeited? Yes, it can be. Uh, We ask for a sign and wonder, maybe even a message in tongues. Has the Holy Spirit ever given message in different languages? At the same time? Has the Holy Spirit ever given signs of one? Yes, he has. Even speaking through a donkey once. Okay? But can this method be counterfeited? Yes, it can. Look for other humans in a position of authority to tell us the right answer. Has God ever sent humans to tell the right answer? Representative of him, a spokesperson, him. we might call it a prophet from the Lord. Has he ever sent people to give the answer? Yes, he has. Can it also be counterfeited? Yeah, if you're not sure about that, remember the old and the young prophet. Can you get a message from an actual true prophet, not a false prophet, a true prophet that's not a true message? Yes, we can. We organize committees of theologians to investigate and come back to us with a theological paper. Does the Holy Spirit ever do this? <clears throat> Enlightened minds of sincere people searching the scripture to come to a true answer. Yes, he has. Can this also be counterfeited? We cite proof texts to support our point. Does the Holy Spirit ever use specific texts for a point? Well, Jesus quoted scripture in defense to the devil. And does this ever get counterfeit? Well, the devil quoted scripture right back. Or vice versa, however, whichever one first. We hold meetings of church delegates to take a vote on what is truth. Does the Holy Spirit ever organize people to come together in a consensus? Well, yes, he does. Can this also be counterfeited? Yes, it can. So all these methods that people use can be used by the Holy Spirit and have been. But they also all have counterfeits. Is there an approach that is actually more resilient and more resistant to counterfeiting than any one of these alone? Yes, there is. How about the integrative evidence-based approach? Thank you. The integrative evidence-based approach, where God has given us three threads of evidence, and we've gone through these before. Scripture, to be harmonized with science and experience, God's design laws and how reality functions, and our own experience. And then when you look at that, some of these other things will fall under that. For instance, when you're praying and get a conviction in your spirit, and you feel the spirit moving on, that's your experience. But that also needs to be harmonized with Scripture, and with God's design laws and how reality works. And when you do that, then you can actually discern, well, you know, I had a conviction that I should go over here. In fact, I know a story, true story. A woman was convicted, based in her spirit, and she thought the Holy Spirit was leading her, went to a deacon in the church and told the deacon in the church he should divorce his wife and marry her. The Holy Spirit convicted her of this. Okay? That was her experience. But if she checked her experience with Scripture, she would know that there was something wrong with that experience, right? Okay, that's a pretty obvious one, but it's, it's, it, it demonstrates the point harmonize the three. When we harmonize the three, we can we can avoid a lot of these problems. I won't say any more on that because I want to go into Sunday's lesson. It asks us to read Acts 5, 1 through 4. I think we can have uh, some interesting concepts from this story. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So let's read it. Acts um, 1, 5, 1 through 4. This is from NIV. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then the second paragraph in the lesson... If the Holy Spirit were not God, then Peter would have been speaking here in a very careless and fatally misleading manner. The interesting aspect about the nature of the Holy Spirit, however, is is the fact that the Apostle Peter puts God and the Holy Spirit on the same level. He, uh, in Acts five three, asks Ananias why he had lied to the Holy Spirit, and he continues at the end of Acts five four, "You have not lied to men, but to God." Peter clearly equates the Holy Spirit with God. His point is that Ananias was lying not just to the apostles, but to God Himself. Lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. The Holy Spirit is God. The point is made. Vi- uh, the, the the point is made here very clearly. Did you find this argument compelling? Now, now, I I don't disagree with the conclusion. I think that the Holy Spirit is God. I think that in this case it's true. I just don't find this particular argument compelling. So I don't think they're wrong. I just don't think this is the best argument to put forward. Why? Well, first off, this whole lesson spends time arguing and just, we'll get more examples of this and we're going to go through them, demonstrating the um, divinity of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that most people who uh, un, uh, argue or have an issue with the Trinity doctrine do not argue that the Holy Spirit isn't God? That's not their argument. What's the argument? All the, all the texts that will show that the Holy Spirit is God will be accepted as true by those who don't believe in the Trinity. But yes, he's God. Of course he is, because... It's the Father Spirit. That's their argument. It's the Spirit of the Father. It's the Father's presence, just with a different name. That's their argument. It's not that it's not fully God. Of course it's fully God, because God's fully God. He's the Father God, of course, and it's the Father Spirit there, moving. So this isn't the greatest argument for me, number one. Number two, the argument here is because of the language used, Holy Spirit and God, therefore they're equal, The Holy Spirit says that uh, because, Peter says, because Peter says that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit and he lied to God that the Holy Spirit is God, I see the argument. I don't think it's wrong. I just don't find it most compelling because Peter also said that he didn't lie to men. You didn't lie to men. You lied to God. Does that make Peter an angel or a woman in drag? You didn't lie to men. Does that mean I'm not a man? I mean, if we're going to think this way, do you see how the argument becomes weak? I don't think it's wrong. I, I, it's just not the most compelling, the strongest argument you can put forward. For those who believe the Holy Spirit is the Father Spirit using uh, the terms interchangeably, this argument showing that the Holy Spirit is fully divine like this doesn't actually resolve their criticism. And we're going to resolve that before the day's over. Um, Before we go into the individuality of the Holy Spirit, though, showing that he is an individual, has his own unique identity, separate and distinct from the Father, maybe we should discuss what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. The lesson says, this is from the lesson, why such a harsh punishment for what these two people did? How do you hear that? What is the lesson suggesting with that language? What do you think they're intending the conclusion to be by the question, why such a harsh punishment? Am I overreading if I ask... I think they're saying that God punished them, that God killed them. Is that a stretch? Is that an overreach? Am I reading into something they didn't mean? Or do you think that's what they meant? Do you have any concerns with that? Or do we all just accept that? Well, yeah, God killed them. He punished them. Well, there's some problems with that. First off, <clears throat> does the Bible ever, any, anywhere in the story, or anywhere else in the entire scripture, ever actually say God punished them or God even killed them? Does it say it? It doesn't say that, does it? Let me go back to Sabbath lesson. We already read this. And I'm going to read to you from the quarterly itself. This is from the quarterly. Quote, we should, not, we should not affirm less than what the Scripture states and we should not exceed what is written. Wait a minute. It's not written that God punished them. It's not written that God killed them. It's not in the Scripture. Why are we teaching it then if we're going to not exceed what the Scripture teaches? It's assumed. Because there's a certain worldview, there's a certain vision of God. God works like a human magistrate. His laws are like ours. When you break his laws, justice required, he punish, Therefore, he's punishing. It's all assumed. It's not actually there. What about, what does the scripture actually teach is the punishment for sin?
2: Death.
0: First or second? Second. Death from which there is no resurrection, not sleeping in the grave like Daniel. Daniel, you're going to rest in the grave and come up the second verse. D- Daniel was not punished for sin, was he? He had a savior. Right? Nananias and Sapphira, eternal death here, or are they resting in the grave coming up again? Which one was it? This is not second death. This is not punishment for sin. How about this one? Even if you take the mindset of the legal view, the view that God must inflict punishment for sin, if we take that mindset, does the inflicted punishment from the judicial magistrate happen before or after judgment? What comes first? Judgment or Punishment. Well, in that mindset, has the great white throne judgment happened in the Nanias Sapphire's day? No, judgment hasn't happened yet. Even in their own distorted view, this is contradictory to what they teach. It doesn't work. This is not punishment for sin. And this is what troubles me. There's these assumptions built in that teach horrible things about God that are contradictory on every level to reality. Even to the penal view, it's contradictory. Yes?
1: But this could still be punishment in the sense of not the second death, but the punishment for their deed to remove them or whatever.
0: Inflicted by God? Right. So, is that punishment? Is he punishing them?
1: It could be construed that way because he's ending their current life. Existence.
0: So if that's the case, why would he be doing it? What would be his reason? If, if, if you're going down that argument, because they broke a rule and he's taking an action to inflict punishment, which is back to the whole point. That judgment hasn't happened yet. Why is he doing that? There has to be another reason if you're going to say God acted here, and the reason would be something therapeutic. He was trying to lance a, a lesion of some sort, which no longer makes punishment then it makes a therapeutic intervention.
1: Punishment okay. to them, but
2: intervention
0: yeah, for the group. Yeah. Okay. I'm still not there yet. Let's see, if, let's see where what else it does the Bible, so Does the Bible say that they were killed by God? It doesn't say that, does it? Does the Bible say they were killed by men or angels? It doesn't say that. What does the Bible actually say? They, died. they, they fell down and died. Yeah. That's what the Bible actually says. If we say God killed them because they lied, what would be the problems with that? What would it say about God and how He runs His universe? What method would God be using? You lied to God; God kills you. What method is that? Coercion. Hmm. Threat, coercion, intimidation—Saddam Hussein type tactics. Does God use coercive tactics? He does It could also be
1: a surgical excision.
0: we are talking—you're talking now on a societal level, yes. okay? Okay.
2: You put them to sleep so they wouldn't corrupt.
0: Ah, putting to sleep now is a whole different issue than punishment, isn't it? Okay. So once you go there, and we can make that argument, okay, maybe God was putting them to sleep, putting them to rest so they wouldn't hurt the other, but that is no longer punishing them for what they did. It's actually protecting them from damaging themselves further and damaging people around them. This is an act of, it's like when we take someone and put them in time out, we call that imprisonment or incarceration. We remove them from society so they can't hurt others and they can't hurt themselves anymore by, by doing more damage to others because they sear their own conscience and harden their own heart when they do. Put putting them in prison, protects them and protects others. Uh, if you have that construct, he just put them to sleep. He just put them in time out. They're suspended in time. They'll raise again at some point at the right time. Okay, but that's not punishment anymore. It's, it's something else.
1: They'll be raised to a different environment. They will no longer have the wooing of the Holy Spirit and for changing of their life and their heart.
0: That, that's, that's all true. It doesn't really change the point that if we take the uh, construct this way, it's no longer punishment, it's intervention. It's protection.
1: It's punishment to
2: them. It's punishment to the, to the loved ones left behind.
0: We're talking about God's heart. okay? When, when you take your child and get vaccines, and your child in, interprets that as I'm being punished because I'm a bad little kid, and my parents hate me, does that mean that you're a hateful, mean-spirited, unloving, cruel, tyrannical parent? Does that mean that? No. We're talking about God's character, not how they interpret it. Their interpretations are based on lies. This is what we talked about last week. Only those who are born again can see the kingdom of God. Yet those who crucified him, Christ said, will see me coming at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You'll see me sitting in my glory. But they don't see his kingdom of love. They see someone who's coming to punish them. That's what they see. It's a lie. They see based on their lies. They don't see his true kingdom. So yes, these people may interpret it as punishment. That's for sure. doesn't mean it was punishment. Any more than the vaccines were punishment. Vaccines aren't punishment. Vaccines are protection. And so that's where we have to have that discernment to say, are we we basing our conclusions of reality on the interpretations of the hard-hearted, the dark-minded, the sin-filled, distorted mind who believes reality based on Satan's lies? They view God as punishing. That's what they think. Or do we view it on the reality of who God is? Yes
3: what it appears to me is, is that the infliction of the result of sin was imminent in this situation where it may not be in our situation so if we look at it as a punishment from God or not from God, that's not as much of the question is is what is the result of their sin is well
0: well I' still going. I want to go down this issue of when it Specifically talking about, and we're not going to talk therapeutic intervention to protect right now. We're going to talk the question of the lesson God punishing for sin. If God were to do that, if He did, what method is it? It's the method of coercion. Do what I say or I will kill you.
2: I mean, don't you
1: think it's a little severe that they shorted the Holy Spirit and then you just got killed?
0: I think we're going to unpack what actually happened in just a moment, but I have, I have to hit the issue of coercion first. You've got to get your mind around that issue. Because you have to disabuse your mind of God using that method. He never does. If you have that idea that sometimes God does coerce, sometimes God does say do it or outside will kill you. If you have that method, that method is contrary to the law of liberty. It's contrary to the law of love. You cannot get love from anyone by threatening to kill them if they don't love you. You can never get love. Ever. In fact, if you try to force intimacy on a person against their will, what is that called? Is God the cosmic rapist? Because this is what most of Christianity is teaching, that God is using his power to force intimacy on people against their will. It is a giant lie. He invites us and there's no threat ever. There's no coercion. There's no pressure. So, when you do threaten somebody, though, do this or else. I mean, you've, you know, it's basically taught, I'm the king. I've made laws. And my law, if you break, break my law, then I'll be forced to, to kill you. And it's all legal. How is that different than I'm the king? I made a law that you bow down to this golden idol. If you don't bow down to this golden idol, I'll throw you in the fiery furnace. Same exact thing. But it's all legal because there's a law. I'm not doing this arbitrarily. We've made it law. We we put it in law, so it's legal for us to do this now. God made a law. I'll show no other gods before me. He wrote it in stone. And if you break the law, he's required to to legally kill you now. And it's, It's not sin because it's legal. It's not evil because it's legal. It's a violation of God's character and design. And this is the infection that Satan has perpetrated upon Christianity, including the Adventist church, that God's laws function no different than our Simple system of rules that he coercively enforces. This is from one of the founders of the Adventist church. Zarve just page 759. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests on goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. Well, power, love. Prevailing love, truth and love. This is um, Review and Herald, September 7, 1897. God could have destroyed Satan and all his sympathizers as easily as one picks up a pebble and casts it to the earth. But to do so would have given a precedent for the exercise of force. All, how much is included in that word? All... The compelling power is found only under Satan's government. Are there any exceptions here in that statement? The Lord's principles are not of this order. He would not work in this line. This principle is holy of Satan's creation. Can it be stated any stronger than this? Yet we still teach it. It is so deeply infecting the thoughts of Christian folk that they actually think it's holy and righteous for God to use those methods and kill people. Here's another one. This is Acts of the Apostles, page 12. "Whereunto, asked Christ, shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what shall we compare it?" Mark 4:30. He could not employ the kingdoms of the world as a similitude. In society, he found nothing with which to compare it. Earthly kingdoms rule by the ascendancy of physical power, meaning coercive power. But Christ's kingdom, but from Christ's kingdom, every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion is banished. And then the reason, there's a reason why, because what God wants, he wants hearts that love and trust him. Now notice in this statement out of Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897, what happens if we obey because we'll be punished if we don't? A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully in the love of God. It is a mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. See, when we obey because we suddenly submit to the higher authority, he's in charge, he says so, I don't agree, I don't think it's right, but I submit because he's the one in charge, he's the authority. Who am I to question? We're not converted. We're not persuaded. Paul says in Romans 14, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. But we're not. We submit. We suddenly submit.
2: But now I'm going to ask you something. Yes? Why in the world, if the Bible is inspired, didn't they just say, and then God laid them to rest, till the second resurrection, or something, to avoid all this confusion? Why, why does the Bible just say, and they died?
0: Because that's exactly what happened. They died. Of what? We're about to get there. Okay. <laughs> we're about to get there. We had to first deal with the issue of coercion. Okay. I'm anxious. Okay. To
2: hear okay, this I'm I have a question.
1: This probably was not the first time that they tried to cheat. I mean this that's the first offense and they're dead, you know, that's pretty severe. Let,
0: let's see if we can think how reality works here. Let's think we think how reality works. And we're gonna tie their death into the unpardonable sin. Can we go back yes. to
1: comment? Yeah. If that's the first sin, then that's pretty severe. Hmm. That still implies that he did it. But
2: well, he did.
0: <laughs> you think God did this?
2: What do they die of?
0: We're about to get there. <laughs> <laughs> but first. I'd just but, like but, to acknowledge that that statement, though, implies. I know, but first, you know, this, this is yeah. before we even get there, that we really should pr- approach this. Do, does the scripture say God killed them? No. no, it does not. It simply says, "Do we?" So to say God killed them, we read into it. We're putting that where it's not. Another place we read into because people have the view that God is the source of death. Is God the source of death? No, no, no. But that, but if He's killed, that makes the other place in Eden right after sin, and He gave them skins to wear, animal skins to wear. It never says that God killed an animal, but it's. Taught almost by every church, including many theologians in our own, that God killed an animal for them and gave them. It never says that. It's not in Scripture. It's not inspired. It's nowhere. It just says He gave them skins. Now tell me, what is actually harder to make, an animal skin or a living animal? Living an animal. But much harder to make. <laughs> much harder to make. Okay. If He made living animals, it's nothing for Him to give them a skin without killing an animal, is it? No. It's all read in. This is where people, because they have a premise, they have an assumption that God behaves in certain ways, and so they teach that He does stuff that the Scripture never says He does. Okay, so with all that in mind, and get your, and so, can God get love by coming to you and saying, "If you don't love me, I will kill you"? No. No, and He He can get conformity. But what we get, if we actually have a, 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 a theocracy in which we have a, a supreme ruler with all power listing rules, and if you disobey, he'll kill you, you get what I just read, sullen submission that leads to the character of a rebel. We do not get transformed characters' hearts. That's so why not by might, nor by power, but
2: spirit.
0: And the spirit is the spirit of truth and Love. This is the prevailing power. It has to convert the soul. It cannot coerce the soul. It's not possible for God to get what he wants to do that. And with that in mind, then, we have to come back and say, okay, the scripture doesn't say God killed him. At the best, I've got an explanation. But At the best, we should say, I don't understand it. But I do understand God is not the source of inflicted death. He's not coercing. I know he, he's not going to... All coercive only under Satan's government. Holy, I mean, when you put those in there, you have to rule out that answer, even if you don't know a better answer. You know that one can't be right.
3: So then, then if the
1: the, the Holy Spirit convicted them and their heart just stopped, is that...
0: So, how do we understand what actually did happen if God didn't kill them there? And, particularly, when Peter predicts that she's about to die. If God didn't do it, how can he predict it? How could he possibly predict that? How many can predict what will happen if I let go of this? How many believe they can confidently predict the next event, what will happen to this if I let go? It's going
3: to fall.
0: Do you have the gift of prophecy? Mm. How can you possibly be so confident with certainty to know? You were right. Look at that. She was right. For once. (laughs) (laughs) How could she be right? You were absolutely... Want to try it again? How many times will she be right? Always. always. Why will you always be right? Natural.
2: Guess yeah.
0: Because you understand the design law, this particular one, law of gravity, and that when you take certain actions in conjunction with that law, certain predictable outcomes occur. God is our Adventist church, supposed to, called into his essence to give a certain end time message. And that first, it's, we call it the three angels' messages. And the first of the three angels, we are called back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the men. We're called back to worship the creator, the designer, the builder of the fabric of the cosmos, how life is constructive, design. Not dictator worship, designer worship. So with design law in in mind here, can we put some threads together? So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he describes the Holy Spirit as? Spirit. Panuma. Spirit, wind, and it blows where it wants. And last week, we examined that idea, and we realized that wind is made of air, and air is ubiquitous, and air is actually required for our physical living, and and, and we we got that. And the Greek for spirit is panuma, and it also means not just wind, it also means, same word for breath, and same word for breath of life. Thus, on the cross, if you read different translations, Jesus died, some say he gave up the ghost, Some say he gave up the spirit. I think I, I, I'm not 100% sure how I did it in the remedy, but I think I put in there he expired. Because what happens when you exhale, sometimes it's called an expiration. And see, the expired has a dual meaning there. He expired, okay? He let out his breath of life, his spirit, panuma. You see, it's, it's very nuanced there. But that one word has all that subtlety there. He let out the air, he let out the breath, he let out the spirit, he let out the source of life, life. yes, exactly. So, what would happen if a person chose to cut themselves off from earth's atmosphere, from earth's air? If they chose to do that, could we say, why did you do this? And could we say with great confidence, since you have chosen to do this, to no longer abide in the air, since you've chosen to set yourself, separate yourself from the life-giving atmosphere, the people who buried your husband are going to bury you also. Could we confidently say that if somebody decided to put a plastic bag over their own head and cut themselves off from the air, you're about to be buried? Oh yes. We could, couldn't we? Yeah, absolutely could. Can we live separated from God? No. Who is the member of the Godhead described in the role of the breath of life?
3: The Holy Spirit.
0: The Holy Spirit is the member of the Godhead who is the breath of life. The Holy Spirit does this give us insight into why we can't be forgiven for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is the physical conduit of life from the eternal God and the applier of the remedy Christ achieved to us. What kind of law did I just describe here? Natural. Design law. Yeah, natural law. Design law. How things are built. The law of love. This prospectus allows us to have perfect harmony with scripture, and yet, put God, and yet stop putting God in the role of acting with Satan's character. What is the message of the three angels, Remember? This is what we're supposed to do. Take the picture of God, the designer picture of God, to the world.
2: I'm still waiting to hear how they die. I,
0: I just said it. You didn't hear it?
2: Well, yeah, but that wasn't very clear. <laughs> Mind anyone thinks that? I mean, seriously.
0: Okay. So Jesus says I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. What method is being used there? Coercion, force, demand, or invitation? Who has the power to control the outcome of the relationship? God or the the sinner? The sinner. So, who controls whether you tie a plastic bag over your head or not?
2: But she didn't do that.
0: Yes she did
2: Okay explain then okay how did he die first then what?
0: Same thing this is what he's saying you've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. you've made a decision to separate yourself from the Holy Spirit.
2: Okay now just a minute. You know of people today that are blaspheming the Holy Spirit.
0: Do we? Okay. Tell me what you think.
2: Well, they don't drop dead. What, what we don't is see it? them drop dead because they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're probably blaspheming the Holy Spirit for
3: a while.
0: Okay, I'm going to jump ahead. To it. Yeah,
2: i want to get to that before we have to leave because you're the- going <laughs> to
0: Let's see, where did I put it? Um.
2: I'm not the only one I know that has thought these thoughts. No, you're not with Yeah, you're right. I mean, look how we taught our kids. I, I'm thinking, can, when you lie and cheat God, you die. I mean, when I'm thinking, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. And you realize how long... And you're
1: a cruel person.
2: <laughs> how long has he been teaching us this? What, seven years? Yeah. And we're still having a difficult time with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... Scripture, it's hard to, under the brainwashing... Scripture tells it's us it's quite clearly that, in the end, those who die will die
0: because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. This this deal with Ananias and Sapphira is, is a, a simple precursor to that. They did not love the truth and thus be saved. And when they were <coughs> confronted with the truth, that confrontation... In my opinion is simply cause a heart attack. If they were ever die. There's an aspect of that as well, I think. I think. Let, 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 I'm going to jump into Monday's lesson, because in Monday's lesson at the bottom, and we'll have to go back and go through the rest of Monday's lesson, but we'll jump to the bottom. It says, uh, It states, Jesus also says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. This is incomprehensible unless the Spirit is divine. So what does this mean? And that says this directly with what we're dealing with Ananias and Sapphira, since they were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Through which law lens do you hear this, though? Unforgivable, meaning uh, this is a legal problem and you can't be have legal pardon in the courtroom of heaven, or design law. Um, how how do you see this fitting with design law? Well, if the Holy Spirit is the agency from heaven, which not only is the source of the breath of life, but also applies to the sin-sick heart what Christ has achieved for us. Remember those quotes from last week and the week before? Without the Holy Spirit making effectual in the believer what Christ achieved, the death of Christ you know, basically, would not have resulted in our salvation. Remember those quotes, okay? Making the Holy Spirit making effectual, applying what Christ achieved in our life. We understand that's the world of the Spirit, not only the breath of physical life, but the breath of eternal life being applied. If a person re- rejects Jesus because they've been told lies about Jesus, or have such cultural bias that they cannot see Jesus in His true light, but their hearts remain open to the working of the Spirit and they value the principles of truth, love, and freedom, what will happen in their heart? The Holy Spirit will bring into their heart all that Christ achieved, and they'll still be saved. Do you get that? No, 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 say that again. I was... If a person rejects Jesus, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm not a believer in Jesus. They deny Jesus, they reject Jesus. Because they've been told lies about him. The version about Jesus they have is warped and distorted, and they reject him. Or they have such cultural bias because Christians have have persecuted Muslims throughout history and they're never going to accept Christianity because that's the way they see Christianity. But their hearts remain open to the working of the actual Holy Spirit. They value the principles of truth. They value the principles of love and the principles of freedom. That's their heart. What will the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit will still apply into their hearts what Christ has achieved and they'll be saved. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 12. Those who do not hear the law but uh, do by nature the things contained in the law, law unto themselves. or conscience-bearing witness that the law has been written on their heart. How did the law get written on their heart? That's the work of the Spirit to do that. Okay? Let's keep going. Use an analogy here. If a person rejects a life-saving medicine because someone told them that medicine was poison and will kill them, even though it is exactly what they need to save them, but they accept the same very medicine in its generic name. They reject it, the brand name. But when you give it to them in the generic name, they accept it and they take it, what will happen? They'll be healed. They'll be healed. So if a person rejects Jesus in his brand name, but they accept him in his generic name, which is? The spirit, love. Okay. The spirit of love, the spirit of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the light. Okay. They expect him to accept his generic name. What'll happen? Okay. So, likewise, if a person rejects God because they've heard only the dictator views and being, and so forth and so on. Okay. But if a person who is sick, rejects the only doctor who has the medicine in its branded form, in its generic form, the only doctor who actually has the medicine, and they reject him, then what? They die. That's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who applies the medicine. Rejecting Jesus, as long as you don't reject the truth of who he is, you may reject the name, but the Holy Spirit still can apply the generic version into your heart. But if you reject the spirit, there is nothing left for God to do because the spirit is the applier into the hearts of all that Christ has achieved for all human beings. So, if the person, let's apply this today, if a person finds the spirit of truth and love, the spirit of truth and love reprehensible, such that they think honesty, fidelity, truthfulness is weak and despicable, and love for others is cheap sentiment, and they reject such motives and principles but claim a belief in God and claim the blood of Jesus as their sacrifice, what will happen? This, This is blasphemy of the Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not merely saying one doesn't believe in the Trinity or that one doesn't believe in God, but is the functional rejection of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit as the source within our internal worlds of truth, honesty, integrity, love, fidelity. Rejecting that there's no there's no coming back from. There's no healing. There's no other source. There's no other applier of what Christ has done. This is true blasphemy. And Ananias and Sapphira in my view t- did that. They preferred dishonesty to honesty, selfishness to selflessness, and they did it in the core of their heart, rejecting the very motives and presence of the Holy Spirit out of their life. I think that happened, number one, cutting themselves off from the spirit of life, and number two, they were confronted with that reality through a representative of that spirit and it shocked them. I think both happened. And I think that's why it was so predictable. Uh, You can predict all day long what will happen to people who reject the Holy Spirit. You can predict all day long. First, first, they're going to be hardened in heart. They're going to be selfish. They're going to exploit. I, when I deal with relationship stuff and I evaluate people and I can see the methods and motives that, that people are working on in their heart, I can predict exactly how they're going to respond in certain situations. I tell them, if you say this, this is what they're going to do. And they come back to me and said, I can't believe it. I, I tried what you said and they did exactly what you said. Yes, it's predictable. You can know how people will respond. Jim. Yeah. Yes.
2: This is so awesome to me because there have been so many people that have lived and that currently I know that are just good-hearted people, and yet they don't claim the name of Jesus. Because Christians have been so unchristian that the picture they have they don't want to be that kind of person.
0: Gandhi famously said, I read the New Testament, and I like Jesus, and I would be a Christian if I ever met one. That means that's what he said. Okay? He loved the teachings of Jesus, but he never met somebody who lived the teachings of Jesus. That's his experience. I think that's your point. And you look at Gandhi's life later in life, not necessarily early on because he was growing and coming, but I think the Holy Spirit was working in Gandhi's life and bringing the principles of truth, love, self-sacrifice. And you see some of the wisdom that he shared with people. He was very selfless, very other-centered, very non-violent. You see the same thing in Martin Luther King Jr. Now, he was a Christian, but you see his methods are completely different than than the current political methods used by Black Lives Matter and so forth. He was completely the opposite of these things. Some of his st- stuff is, is incredible. You know, his dream speech. You read his dream speech. He was dreaming for a day when the little girls could grow up and be judged not by the color of their skin, but the quality of their character. Do you understand black lives matter is just the opposite of that? It's the color of our skin matters, not the quality of our character. It's just the opposite. It's just about the external... Uh, and, and we as a Christian, the Christian principle is... But Ben Carson said in the thing, you know, I'm a neurosurgeon. When I cut into somebody's head, guess what? All their brains look alike no matter what color their skin is. That's exactly right. Okay? Below the skin, we're all human beings with, with the same undercurrent of, of, of issues and the same worth as, as people made in God's image. And we can be either created to be Christ-like regardless of the color of our skin or we can be hardened into the fashion of the devil regardless of the color of our skin. And it is the quality of the character that matters. And we have no power in ourselves to change our character only by partaking of what Christ has achieved through the working of the Spirit. And that goes back to the generic versus the branded. I kind of like that analogy. I just came up with that, but I kind of like that. <laughs> Seriously, because that is exactly what Jesus taught himself. I am the way, the truth, and the, and the light. Okay? He is the source of love. Uh, the, generic, the other generic versions in Scripture, the word... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. That's a generic version. It's the Word. Yes?
3: I think what seems to be confusing is is the, you know, when you show the pen-dropping option, we know what's going to happen because it happens every time, right? We don't know, I mean, I think collectively we would say that there are people among this there that we would have assumed Committed that so-called impartial sin and did not die that instantaneous death. So, so my thought is is that it comes back to that point. It's the imminence of the result of sin that, that quickness that it happened very quickly here, and that was what appears to be confusion. But the, the bottom line is, that so, it's so, not coercion from God.
0: That's right. And so, what? So let's clarify that point. Okay. So, what lesson do we learn that in this case it, it happened very quickly? One, one conclusion that many people draw is that therefore god acted to inflict it that would be the wrong conclusion there are other conclusions that we should remember we all teach this we don't actually apply it very often but when we're brought to our attention to it we all go oh yes oh yes that's true uh, yes i believe that Yes, yes 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 and that is man looks on the outward appearance but god looks on the heart, and we can't judge the secret motives of the heart or where a person is, regardless of how offensive their behavior actually looks at a period of time, particularly maybe a thief who's lived their whole life in reprobate living and blends up on a cross next to Christ. Okay? We might judge him as completely eternally lost, but he wasn't. Or a person who is a, a very wonderful church-attending person who always looked like he did the right thing and uh, was on church committees and blah, 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 and he, for 30 pieces of silver... I mean, we we are very bad at looking at where somebody is. And so one lesson is, you know what? The Holy Spirit diagnoses perfectly, number one. Number two, that God's grace is always at work and God's grace in different times and places will act in different ways because the grace of God as I understand it is the working of God to heal and to restore that's what grace is his action his energy working to heal and restore his, self, his creation and and God's grace does different things in different times places and circumstances and in this time and place and circumstance God's grace was that this circumstance required, resulted in, this is the best action, I'm going to give them what they've actually chosen at this point in time, for a variety of reasons. Other places, God's grace might say, they're going to still experience the same thing, but I'm going to suspend that, because this person has some demonstration of what happens in an unhealed heart and mind, and that evidence needs to be carried forward so others can see, rather than for them to just drop dead right now. So we were very poor judges of all those nuances of time and space and characters and hearts. Yes.
1: When Peter declared that Christ was the Son of God, Christ said, the Spirit has revealed that to you. This is another episode in which the Spirit revealed something to Peter. We do not always have that discernment of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't tell us, so is going to drop over dead. That's right tomorrow, the next day, or whatever. And so the the miracle here was of the discernment by Peter given by the Spirit, not the intervention of the Spirit
0: on Ananias and Sapphira. I had several thoughts on that. I don't disagree. So, uh, Monday's lesson, back to the top, um, it talks about the lesson... Points us to four texts uh, that uh, look at the attributes that are ascribed to the Holy Spirit and are exclusive to the prerogatives of God. And they are 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, the Spirit knows the mind of God, and only only God would be able to know his own mind. Um, Psalms 139-7, the omnipresence of God, only God is omnipresent. Hebrews 9.14, immortality, uh, inherent, only God is immortal. Uh, Luke 1.35, wielding the power of the Most High. And only, of course, God wields the power of the Most High. So these texts provide abundant evidence to support the teaching that the Holy Spirit is fully God. I have a little question for this. However, these texts do not address the interpretation of the critics of the Trinity that, of course, they, he's fully God because it's God, the Father's spirit himself. It's not a different individuality. It's God's spirit. And that's the criticism they come back with. And these texts do not answer that question. And you can see, and what they would say is simply that the Holy Spirit is just another name for God, and the Bible's filled with names for God, like El Shaddai, El Elyon, El Olam, uh, Yahweh, and there's a whole bunch of Yahwehs, I'm not going to read them all, Adonai, and in the New Testament, Theos is is the term just for God, and Kyrios, which is the Greek word translated Lord, and is applied to God, but it's also applied to um, human masters. Um, despotes. Uh, which is, uh, means master. I wonder if, I haven't looked it up, I wonder if a despot comes from that. I think it probably does. And then father, the term for father, Abba, uh, in the New Testament also. And we find all these names for God. And God has many names in scripture. So what do we say then to those who suggest that panuma, spirit, Holy Spirit, uh, used for the spirit is just another name for the eternal God and not another individuality who is equal with God? What do we say to that?
1: When when we were directed to, to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it doesn't make sense to be directed to to be baptized in the three whatever if there's only two.
0: Okay, and who gave that direction? Christ. Okay, so there's a good example. There's a good example where Christ is actually using all three in the same context, but. For, for a function, but list them separately. That, to me, is a strong... And how about this? Same type of thinking, John 14, 15-17. If you love me, you obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. John 14, 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said. And then 15, 26 of John, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So in addition to the baptism portion, here we have Jesus actually making a clear distinction between the Father and the spirit, who is another Counter somebody distinct and separate and identifies him with individual pronouns as an individual identity. So this to me is stronger evidence of an individuality of the Holy Spirit than simply showing that the Holy Spirit had divine abilities.
2: But you know, if Adam was created in the image of God mm-hmm. and we hear that Christ sits on the throne beside God. You don't hear anything of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the form of like a human being or a being. It's always like spirit. You don't ever hear it like, and the the Holy Spirit sits on the other side of God, or the Holy Spirit sits, you know what I'm saying?
0: Because the Holy Spirit evidently, as far as we know, hasn't really manifested himself very often in physical form. We know one case where he did, in the form of a dove coming down onto Christ, he's manifesting in a physical form at that moment. So what Uh,
2: form is he now in heaven?
0: uh, As far as we know, he doesn't take on physical form very often at all. He stays in an ethereal, um, out of phase with us, um, the energy, uh, quantum link between the divine God and all of his creation. It could be the same with God, too. Mm-hmm. See, we want a physical manifestation. I think it's very clear that God is not restricted to physical forms. I've never assumed that God was restricted. That's why we have Jesus. I never, ever assumed God was restricted to physical forms. How can, if he's restricted to a physical form, how can he be all places at all times?
2: No, no, I don't think of him as restricted to physical form. I'm just saying that when, at times, he's spoken of as a physical form. I've never heard the Holy Spirit spoken of as a physical form. Yes,
0: you have. The dove I just gave well, you huh?
2: Okay, okay. So or the
1: flame of fire.
2: Well, I don't consider that a human form or something. I mean... What does a human... I know, you're right.
0: Okay. So, the Bible also teaches the plurality of God. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. This is, these are clear plural pronouns, not let me make man in my image. So there's a plurality here. Um, even the most famous text quoted by Jews and Muslims about there is only one God, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, is actually teaches a plurality. The passage here uses both Lord, our God, is one Lord. If you read it with the Hebrew names of God substituted there, you would read it like this. Hero Israel, Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. That's what it, that's how, those are the words used there that are translated Lord and God. What is interesting is the word Elohim in Hebrew is a plural, uh, noun. It's the same word used in for God, in Genesis one twenty six, let us make man in our image. Thus, an accurate English reading might go something like this. The one is more than one, yet is one. That's really what that text means. The one is more than one, yet is one. In Hebrew, there are two words for one, yachid and ichad. The first indicates singularity, a unit, one single unit, an individual. The second indicates a compound unity as the oneness of two or more joined together in one. In this particular text, the Lord our God is one Lord. The the word for one there is ikad, the plural one, not the singular one. The Bible is precise in this, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in a plurality of oneness. But for me, the most compelling evidence, and I want to get this as we close, the most compelling evidence is the character of God himself. The Bible said God is love. Love is not self-seeking. It's outward moving. It's giving. It's other-centered. And this is the best argument when you ever deal with the Trinity issue, for me. And that means love cannot exist in a singularity. God could not be love in isolation. Love requires an object to pour itself upon. Love is other-centered. God's nature and character of love, rightly understood functionally, requires that there be a trinity, because the minimum number of individuals for love to actually be other-centered is three, not two. Three. In two, you can have narcissistic reinforcement, where both of them are pouring their adoration and praise upon the other and just reinforcing the narcissistic need. And I see this in relationships where a husband and wife are married and they're married for five, ten years or more and never have any conflict in the marriage because they both just adore and worship each other and pour all their attention upon the other. And then they have their first child. And the first child comes into the world and the husband becomes very, very irritable, hostile, upset, because now the attentions of the wife are no longer primarily on him. He is not first in her time, her energy, her first thoughts. It's the child. And he has never had to sacrifice himself for the welfare of another. And he gets very agitated as lots of conflict comes. This exposes a narcissistic reinforcement rather than genuine other-centered love. In the Trinity, we have all three willing to sacrifice themselves for the benefit of the others. Always. That's why Christ is never pointing to Himself; He's pointing to the Father, the Spirit, and lightening, and constantly. And so, this functional love, as you understand how it works, is the best argument for a Trinity, because God can't God can't be love in isolation. And this is why we were made in His image, husband and wife, two separate individualities coming into unity, a unity of two. No, not as God designed. A unity of three. Because each one is a spirit temple where the spirit dwells. And it's the husband, wife, and spirit joined together in a trinity of love. Is how God designed us to be. And the devil is constantly working to fracture that, either to get the Holy Spirit out of the heart so it's just the two, or to cause division between the husband and wife with hierarchical organization where we're not equal, but one rules over the other, and so forth. He's always trying to break up that. And in closing, as our last thing. Ellen White wrote in Evangelism, page 615. There are three living persons in the heavenly trio. The name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized. And these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are love. Other centered, love beyond our imagination, love beyond our comprehension, and never anything other than always functional love, seeking the best interest of your creation, seeking to heal, to uplift, to restore, not the source of sin, not the source of pain, not the source of suffering and death, but the healing remedy to restore your creation back to unity with you. We ask that your spirit will be poured into our hearts and minds, free us from the lies and the distortions and the assumptions and the presuppositions that keep us from knowing you and bring us back into a true intimacy with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.